when film criticism is as provocative as ever, Feelin' Film ventures to change the discussion from what we hate about a film to what we love about it. We judge more on emotional experience than technical merit, because every movie makes us feel something. Hey listeners, happy Father's Day, and welcome to episode 63 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. There may not be any crying in baseball, but I can guarantee you that some man tears were shed as we prepared for this week's episode. We're talking about the 1989 classic, if you will, uh, Field of Dreams. Maybe that's a debatable term for it, but at least I thought it was a classic. Oh, well. Anyway, with me, as always, is my good friend and co-host, Aaron White. Hello. How are you doing tonight, man? I'm good. And good. I think we'll just have to say, count it. It is a classic. Okay. Yep. Yep. Sounds good I'll, to me. I chime in already. Yep. Oh, there's a familiar voice. Who is that? That would be Don Shanahan. Don, welcome back to the show, man. Good to, good to hear from you. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me. This is first official full episode with you folks. I've been doing the little stuff along the way, and it's nice to have this day on the calendar finally come, and what a better weekend to do it than Father's Day. Absolutely, man. Got, had you in the minor leagues, and now we called you up to the big show, so we'll see how uh, you do. And, you know, <laughs> I, I will go back to my bull dorm roots when this is over. I'll go, you know put the garters on and flood the field and have that good time <laughs> i foresee a lot of baseball puns coming listeners oh can on this show really? you can expect puns aplenty depending on the episode <laughs> i feel like we need like a bell like a dinger like bing every bing. time we have a baseball pun here or maybe a wah, wah. <laughs> maybe even like a bat crack or something like that i don't That'd know be good <laughs> as always before we dive in uh we, let's go around the table and uh, find out what we've all been up to this week Aaron, why don't you go ahead and get us kicked off with that well this week i had a, an interesting conversation with uh, some of my friends who are not quite the movie buffs that um the facebook group we have employs these are friends that enjoy movies here and there typically just blockbusters one of them randomly brought this movie up and said hey Aaron, have you seen this film called the life of david gale so before I start talking, I want to ask, have either of you seen it? I have not because I had a bit of a buyer beware moment where I'm like, I don't think I need to see that. Okay. Patrick? I, I heard about it and the cast looked pretty amazing, but I never had a chance to pick it up. Okay. So I had not seen it either. I knew about it. I knew that it starred Kevin Spacey and that mm -hmm. he was supposed to put on a good performance. And I knew that it was somewhat controversial, but I didn't know why. So my friends were talking about it and he kind of gave me gave it away a little bit and said, you know, there's there's this ending, there's a thing that happens at the ending that that everybody is pretty torn on. You know, a lot of people got very angry about what happened. And through him discussing it, I, I really like to engage, especially with those friends at work or these the or coworkers or these kind of friends that don't watch as many movies. I always want to contribute to that conversation so I can kind of get them fired up and excited about talking about movies. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to stop what I'm going to do in this afternoon. I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and watch this movie. The other reason that I did that is because I found out before watching it, that the life of David Gale is one of the rare films that Roger Ebert gave zero stars. Now on Roger Ebert's scale, uh, who also write rates movies very similar to we do here on veal and film from an emotional kind of experiential type of perspective, a zero star film to him was something that was so morally offensive that he could not rate it objectively based wow. on even based on its quality. Like it had for zero had to be something that was just completely and utterly despicable to him. 
So I was like, well, count it. I got to see that, you know, like that's, that's uh, for film education purposes alone. So guys, I, I watched this movie and I got to say, I ended up feeling exactly like Roger Ebert. I would hesitate to ever recommend this film because, oh because what it does is it treats the death penalty as a plot device. So the film revolves around David Gale, this, this death penalty abolitionist or activist who is arrested and charged with the murder and rape of a fellow death penalty activist that he was working with. He is now on death row. He has never spoken. And three days before his death, he calls in a reporter and the reporter has to pay him $500,000 for this exclusive interview. He goes through the process of telling his story, twists and turns and, and things come out. And the style of the film is just kind of all over the place. It's got like an upbeat rock type soundtrack, um, transitions. It utilizes these flashes on the screen that look like little scraps of paper with the seven deadly sins written on them. So you'll have a flash on the screen. They'll say lust, envy, greed, but it completely, I don't understand what the purpose is. Um, and the whole movie is very preachy about the death penalty. It feels like it feels like the filmmakers are trying to take a stand, right? And be anti-death penalty, saying, "Oh, hey, maybe this guy shouldn't be on the on death row. Maybe this is a mistake." But in the end, and I can't spoil exactly what happens just in case people want to watch it, but in the end, they, please spoil it. I no. Please spoil it. They Dang it. they All treat right. it to me with so little respect that I just was disgusted because of because it's such a serious issue. And in trying to explain to my friends why it bothered me, the way I had to put it was, you know, I, I wouldn't mind if you wanted to make a penalty that used the death penalty as a plot device if the whole movie you committed to that. If the whole movie it was just a, a, a fantasy, a joke, um, a playful film, right? But if you're going to spend the whole movie preaching to me, trying to act like you're making a point and then completely undo it at the end of your movie <laughs> and, and make it all worthless and, and meaningless, then you literally just used it as a means to tell a twisting story. And to me, that, it's a much wow. more serious issue than that. And so I was pretty disgusted. I completely understood Roger Ebert's zero star review. It's a, it's a fascinating kind of experience to go through this film, but it's not one that I would recommend. Patrick, what was the last film you saw that was like that, that would be like just that manipulative or that off, <laughs> too on the nose and et cetera like that? Um, I, I honestly don't know. I haven't seen a film that's made me cringe like that. I mean, I, I got one, but I'll go I, let you go. Yeah. No, go, go ahead, Don. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of drawing a blank. Sure. For me, the last one that did that where I was just kind of wincing going, where are they going with this was Collateral Beauty last holiday season. Okay. Where, you know, you take this, I don't know, these, you know, specters of the afterlife and you use them to manipulate this guy to give up his company and make him feel better so his friends can have their golden parachute. I was like, come on. So it, it, it felt as manipulative as where this sounds like it's going, other than this sounds worse because it's going to be better. As, as someone who loves the art of filmmaking and his, you know, in, in my limited capacity attempting to, to do filmmaking, there's that, I think there's that there's that pressure to try to create something out of nothing and to try to say more than you should. I'm okay with being on the nose if you're being allegorical, if that's your intent. 
And I'm okay with being a little bit ambiguous if you're trying to create a sense of dissonance and discomfort with your audience. But when you're doing that just because you're just trying to be, you know, smart or, or more than you think you're doing, it just comes across as pretentious, it sounds like. And I don't know that I've experienced a film that has done that so much, but there was a, a short film that a buddy of mine actually scored and he said, I want you to watch this film and tell me what you think of it. And I, I wrote him back and I said, I don't understand what's going on at all. He goes, I don't either. It's amazing I got to score it at all because I just, I scored, he said, I wrote music for obscurity because I've watched it 10 times and still don't understand what's going on. <laughs> and it's it's frustrating. It really is when you, uh, as, a, as, a, as an audience, you feel either stupid or let down or both when in actuality, maybe the filmmakers don't even know what's going on. So yeah, this, this was, it was a very interesting conversation. It was cool to have it with my friend because he, he loved it or not. He didn't love it. I take it back. He liked it just fine because it had a twist at the end. And for him, he watched it simply as a movie and he detached himself from anything that the film was trying to say. But I tell you, I'm telling you, the way they handle it is just, it's mm. so gross. And, and it just does, it does a disservice to, um, the real issues around the death penalty and both sides, you know, people to support and defend it. So anywho, that, that was mine. That was the one that I, I kind of had to, to bring up tonight and, and talk about Patrick. As a, as a caution at the very least to, <laughs> to proceed with caution if you decide to watch it. For sure. <laughs> yeah. Don, what about you? What have you been up to this week? Uh, this week has been very Cars 3-centered, but I, the movie I can't get out of my head this week, and I have to write the review for it tonight if I get my chance after the show, is um, The Book of Henry from Colin Trevorrow. And um, I know the reviews are starting to hit the internet this week, and they sound kind of out there and crazy, but um, the movie is out there and crazy. The, I haven't seen – I tell you what, this is probably the most unexpected movie I've seen this year yet, and that counts me seeing – Get Out and A Ghost Story and some of these uh, and Beguiled and some of these films that we've seen so far. This movie was curveball after curveball, and I'm not sure if the tonal swings really match with that or work. But um, I it, it I still kind of in an odd little way because of how just uh, how perplexing it was in terms of going from tense, um, almost a, a grief-stricken family drama to you know. Uh, you know, proposing murder. Um, I was like, gosh, that's such a pendulum swing. I, I kind of was into it. You know, the film edge of your seat kind of thing for sure. But um, I don't know if it, I don't know if it works, but I can't get it on on my head and I got to figure out a way to write it tonight. <laughs> well, I'm definitely looking forward to the review on that. It sounds really intriguing. And I think Aaron, you actually threw a trailer up or I don't know if you, it was a direct message or whatever, but I remember seeing a trailer for this. Uh, oh, I did. Late yeah, and I was like, this is this is intriguing. It, the yeah. trailers the yeah. trailers all over the place too. So yeah, I saw that trailer. Um I didn't I wanted I wanted to go into the film cold, uh, but uh, our mutual friend E Man, Emmanuel Noise, had talked me into seeing the trailer because he was supposed to come to the screening with me. And um I had not seen the trailer to to the book of uh, Henry, and I'm like, All right, I'll give it a shot because he's like, You gotta see this trailer. And I did, and I felt like the trailers showed too much. And as usual, most trailers do show too much. And I was like, Shucks, if I if I seen too much, am I gonna enjoy this film or have all the twists and turns kind of already been laid out in the way that the trailer kind of does because there's this you know murder plot and these kids and the different issues and problems of maybe abuse next door and all that and it it does definitely overtell that but after seeing the movie it really does take an angle of um 
of uh, more directions than the trailer does, which is is what's nice and welcome. So yeah, I mean, um, like I said, it's a film I'm still trying to wrap my head around. I got to try to write that review and see how that turns out. Well, I've definitely liked the things that Colin Trevorrow's done between Jurassic World and uh, and his, his independent film, uh, the the time travel one. And so I'm safety not guaranteed. Safety not guaranteed a good so, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm interested to see this one to see kind of. Did he write it or did he just direct it? You know, um, that's a good question, and I don't have it off the top of my head. And the the computer will go fast. It go that'll take longer than my brain will go. Not sure. <laughs> yeah. Not sure. I want to say this is based on a novel, so okay. I wonder if he, I don't know if he adapted it or if he's just steering the ship. Okay, very cool. Yeah, I'm I'm very interested in it as well. Um, love him, and I thought the the premise was interesting. And is it um, Jacob Tremblay? Is who's yes. who's playing the boy? So it is, um, it is Jacob. Well, there's Trimmer, two. Right? There's two. Uh, one of the sons is um, a very gifted individual and is played by um, I'm never going to get his name correct. Um, uh, he was in Midnight Special and then oh really? Uh, ago. So uh, is that Jacob or is it Jared? Jacob. Well, there's Jacob Tremblay and then there's there's Jaden Liber Liberher. Yep. Yep. That's the one I can never pronounce. Uh, yeah, Jaden Liberher. Um, he's your lead. Um, and then Jacob Tremblay is kind of the uh, um, the look up to Big Brother, Little Brother, um, and both are fantastic, you okay. know. And uh, and uh, Naomi Watts is always solid. Uh, she plays a very interesting and different mom, movie mom that you would normally get. She's kind of uh, kind of a screw up of a mom, but can afford to be a screw up because her son's so smart. Like she kind of put cruise control on and not be the most active parent in the world until she has to be. And it, there's a thing in the film that makes her has to be. So um, yeah, it's. I, like I said, it's the most unexpected movie I've seen this year, and that's saying something considering what we've had so far. Well, that excites me. I, I, so I looked it up real quick. The writer is not Jacob not, – not Jacob Tremblay. No, it's not Jacob Tremblay. It's not uh, Colin <laughs> Trevorrow. Um, his name is Greg Hurwitz, and okay. He, ah, okay. he is actually the author of the book. Oh, neat. Guys, this is that's sitting good. at – I like when they do that. This is sitting at 27 on a meta, in Metacritic. I know. <laughs> I mean, it's oh. terrible. But no, – but the it's premise weird. is exactly the kind of films that I personally love, and I'm yeah. I'm really really interested now to see what happens in the crazy world of Star Wars fandom because mm-hmm. now that people know that Colin Trevorrow is going to be directing the next Star Wars film, are they going to freak the heck out over this movie not doing right? <laughs> well, no, I mean I tell you what, um, what Tre- Trevorrow's angle of it works just fine. And um, even, um, he, you know, he borrows his buddy, Michael Giacchino, to do the score. And that's perfect because we know Giacchino can do the big stuff and he can slow that down and do the piano motifs and the little stuff at the same time as because there's a bit of a thriller component here. Some of those like almost like lost ish cues that he's so good at just kind of creep in and not creep in in a very overt way, but just enough where you like you know, enough to raise those hairs in the neck just a little bit. So no, I, um, if I have to score it right now without writing the review, I'm kind of in the middle. I can't, I can't trash it. I, I enjoyed it too much and it, and it made my mind work enough that it's a three out of five, at least for me, I can't go all the way to four. I wouldn't dare, but, um, it's not a two and it's not a one, but the pendulum swings are a little strong. It, it's, it's a challenging film. It was worth seeing for sure. Cool. 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 Very cool, man. Well, you guys, you you guys have thought-provoking uh, recommendations. That's fantastic. I, however, do not. This is <laughs> I, I don't know how I could follow up uh, two films like that. One that's just completely bizarre, and one that leaves you thinking. That's 
that's two uh, really great cerebral reactions. However, it's summertime uh, around the house. We don't have much to watch on television, and so we revert to old standards. Uh, reality TV has kind of taken over the household at least once or twice a week. And I, I think what I like about reality television, and let me let me preface that by saying what I like about certain reality television um, uh, is particularly competitions, which I guess most reality TV is that way, is it's a common thing for my wife and I to watch together. And there's a new show that's on NBC, and it's called World of Dance. And has nothing to do with movies. There's nothing necessarily like intriguing about it, except for the fact that I really like watching dance, and I like the diversity of of these different styles that come onto the television. For a long time, we watched So You Think You Can Dance, and like any kind of talent competition, you're going to get backstories about people. And I started thinking about well, why do I like these so much? Besides the fact that I just love watching the performances, there's an emotional aspect of it that comes with that. There are folks that are incredibly talented, but they bring a sense of storytelling with their routines. They're not just throwing their arms and legs around. They're not just popping and locking. They're actually crafting stories without words, almost like a pantomime of some kind. And so my wife watched the first couple of episodes, the preliminary rounds, and she said, hey, I, th- I think you might like this show because, you know, we've been watching other stuff in the past. And uh, so I sat down and watched the this episode and was completely hooked. I I enjoy it not only because it doesn't take a lot of brain power to enjoy. It's just something that's purely an emotional, enjoyable thing. But also because of the fact that um, <laughs> it's just beautiful to watch and see how people create and do so from a standpoint of a competitive nature. There were a couple of acts that were uh, told they did a great job, but they were sort of criticized because they were more of an artistic thing, not really a competitive thing. They didn't have that kind of energy. So um, by default, I'm going to recommend it if you're if you're into that kind of stuff. But it's definitely something that will keep our interest throughout the summer, along with hopefully some other short summer series that are going to be resuming like Halt and Catch Fire. But uh, yeah, so no thinking, just enjoying uh, World of Dance, NBC. Well, um, I'm glad <laughs> that you have that, right? things that you enjoy, Patrick. <laughs> I try to keep my, my palate diverse. I, that counts as diverse. That counts as diverse. I, uh, you know, I was hopeful for a couple of minutes there that we were going to get to talk about Big Brother, and then we didn't get to talk about Big Brother. We, we went the That's dance your, route. That's your show. That's not mine. You, you uh, guys are way ahead of me because I watch absolutely zero reality television i take that back my wife made me watch dancing with the stars because chicago cup catcher david ross is in other than that i don't i don't touch the stuff it's just it seems overproduced to me everything american pickers pawn stars it's a zillion things i, I completely I just agree don't care you. yeah i completely but this, agree but this one you know. got you huh well it's it's the fact i mean it's, it, it's a summer type thing for us like we sure we're, we're not hooked on you know year-round stuff we've got enough television during the uh the academic year to mm-hmm. keep us keep us interested and so when that stuff goes away there are other competition shows that are really it feels almost like a vacation from that because we're not necessarily intrigued and we're following storylines but not to the extent of saying okay i need to keep up with this person because there's always recaps and things so from a purely just enjoyment standpoint it's it's a lot of fun and that's the part i can't question then you know yeah for sure well we're not here to talk about dancing or weird cerebral movies although we could do that sometime. We're here to talk I, about. Oh, 
You don't think we're gonna watch? We're gonna talk about a weird cerebral movie? Well, okay, I guess it's up to interpretation, but <laughs> not okay. really. At least not one that's gonna explain <laughs> the death penalty or hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. This is unexplained mad science or religion or spirits or otherwise of a man talking, hearing words in the corn. This <laughs> this is be the weirdest thing we talk about tonight. <laughs> Touche, not. But it's about okay. baseball, Ray. It's it about, about baseball. <laughs> you can't get more normal than that. <laughs> Well, let me go ahead and kick us off by saying that, as always, this is a spoilerific show. Please, please go watch this movie before you hear us talk about it. Uh, I don't know if there are any major plot points, maybe near the end, but just in case you haven't seen it, know that we're going to be spoiling the heck out of this. That being said, as we like to do to get things started, what was your emotional takeaway? How did you feel walking away from, from a film like this? I guess because it's so old, did you guys have a past experience with it growing up this is the first time watching repeat tell me about it aaron why don't you why don't you start us off well i notoriously have kind of said that i haven't seen this before um i i have seen it before and i saw it as a, as a kid but it was literally 20 plus years ago to the point that i remembered you know very little i remembered the meme aspects of it where, okay, I know that there's a guy and he builds a field and it's got ghosts of old baseball players, but detail wise, I didn't remember anything um, about why he was building the field. And so watching it this time, the first time ever as a father, um, especially so close to father's day, it was a uniquely emotional experience for me. Now, I am not one of the guys who will always say that baseball is romantic. I think that it can be romanticized at times. And I, I, I would never argue with someone who does feel that way about it. But for me, it's not that way, right? But I felt romantic about this movie and the way that it portrayed the characters in it, their love for the game and what the game meant to them. And it's not about a sport. It's not about stats. It's about the connection to a dad. It's about the, the memories of growing up and things like that. And so I was very, very moved by the movie, Patrick, um, and shocked, honestly, at how, how well it kept me hooked, even though it was, you know, from a dated aspect, it's pretty cheesy. And yet it was so powerfully emotional that I didn't care one bit. I, I absolutely loved it. How about you, Don? What about you? Um, I, I matched that as in terms of emotional takeaway in, in one level, but then I'll talk about kind of background a little bit. Um, I saw this as a kid. Um, it's become a semi-annual watch ever since. Like, if you just need a good night when baseball season comes around in March or April, or even when the game's wrapping up in October and the Cubs are out of it until this past year, um, you can just put this on and have a good cry and just appreciate the game that you enjoy. Um, I, as a kid, baseball, baseball was it. Baseball was the one I wanted so bad. Thanks to films like this. And I try, I was, I, I was as a kid, the smallest kid in my class all the time. I was, I was that, you know, freshman year high school, I was four foot 11, 95 pounds. And as an elementary kid, I was even smaller than that all the time. So I was a terrible baseball player, but boy, I really dreamt it. I really believed it. I really thought I can do all of it. So for me, for once I was old enough to get that movie to feel the dreams, um, 
it it destroyed me. It, it still destroys me now. And it um now that it's much like Aaron, now that I'm a father, um, it's man, it, it does not take much. I, I'll hear the chord of music from James Horner and I'm already gone. I'll see just James Earl Jones just with the the you know, the glint of light off his glasses and I'm already gone. So um I, I'm a bawling, flubbering mess when I watch this film movie, and I love it. Um, I like that the film destroys me. And my emotional takeaway, other than just the the feels, so to speak, is um, unfulfilled dreams is what I really take away out of it. Each of the characters that are being drawn to this field and drawn by whatever the voices and the visions and things like that all have something, and normally it's surrounding baseball, which is great, but it, you see that the, the experiences that baseball is the setting for – uh, come from unfulfilled dreams of other things, whether it's um, Kevin Costner's father, Ray, uh, wanting to um, wanted, wanting to closure with his father, whether it's James Earl Jones missing that um, that t- team of his youth, whether it's Moonlight Graham wanting that one at bat. Each character that comes to that field, and even Shoeless Joe Jackson has a chance to play again, um, all of it, it stems for me from unfulfilled and unfinished dreams and and goals and visions whatever you want to call it and um there i find just lovely um fantastical beauty in that like all of us i think even if it's not baseball and even if it's not fathers would love a chance to fulfill whatever is that one thing that's on the woulda coulda shoulda list and this movie does it through the vessel of baseball and i think it's just yeah, it's beautiful. It's simple. It, it's weird. It's cheesy. You're right. It hasn't. It has. It has not aged well. But I think it's one of those films where, no matter how old it's going to get, it'll just be. Its reverence is universal enough that the setting might be a time capsule, but the 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 emotional takeaways from it won't be. That maybe like E.T. Like E.T. is a 1980s film, but um, we can pull that out of the shelf anytime and just be bonded to a companion the way that this film can bond you to maybe it's baseball maybe it's your father maybe it's unfulfilled dream you find that one thing that you wish on the woulda coulda shoulda list and a movie like this is a trigger enough um yeah that's where i came from patrick what about you well i echo a lot of what you guys are saying i too grew up watching this film with my dad it was one of my favorites with him Baseball as a whole, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna be the guy that is, you know, that admits to being a romantic when it comes to the game of baseball. I grew up playing it, was never very good. Um, I grew up watching the Atlanta Braves on TBS. I've always been a fan of them. Of course, being from Arkansas, I never get a chance to go to many games, and so I I went through a stint, I guess, through part of my college career where I just stopped caring. I was, you know, I guess I was just getting to a new season of life, and then. In my 20s, I got reacclimated to it. I don't know what caused that specifically, but I started making a conscious effort to follow Atlanta again. And this is when they weren't great. This is like when they were, ta- you know, tapering off into the not good land. So it definitely wasn't because they were a dynasty at that point, or at least that anymore. But I, there's something about the game of baseball and about the stories that are told within that context that somehow grabbed me. Um, I'm looking around my my office here, and I'm seeing these figures of of uh, you know, of Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris, and I think about you know the the home run race of 1961 and just how that intrigued. And so I love the Billy Crystal movie that that chronicles that. I love Eight Men Out, the story of the of the Black Sox that's actually mentioned here in in this film. And I 
I still can't really put my finger on why the game, why films about the game, why stories about the game of baseball intrigue me. I think the closest that I can get to is really embedded in the game itself and the fact that it's this slow burn. It's this almost like this just 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 mellow conversation. This if you, if you could equate it to something else, it's like sitting around and having coffee. You're just kind of conversating back and forth. It's very um, it doesn't feel pretentious. It feels in some ways it I say it feels pure. Keeping, you know, the strike and all the other steroids and all that stuff notwithstanding, baseball to me has always been one of those games that was very much about strategy, about thinking. Um, it was it's a it's a slow game. I mean, I will I will tell anyone if you don't enjoy the game of baseball fully, it's tough to sit at a game and really just take it in. I keep score to help keep the you know, keep the entertainment there. But baseball as a whole, I feel like is just this, I can't, I I almost can't just describe it. I feel like it's this old friend that just never goes away and Fields of Dreams kind of speaks to that. But I wonder if at times, uh, particularly in the film, um, Don, you mentioned the, the, uh, the theme of regret and how each character deals with it. So why, why does baseball or why do you get, or how do you think baseball, the game has helped resolve these regrets or has it? I mean, we see at least four characters, Joe, Ray, Terrence, and Moonlight that's, that do that. So what do you guys think? Well, there, there's a, there's a really good quote that kind of ties into to this conversation and that we're having about the romantic nature of baseball. And partially, I think this, this explains what the film believes that baseball baseball's role is in our lives and potentially why it can help with those regrets. And the quote is the one constant through all the years, Ray has been baseball. America has rolled by like an army of steamrollers. It's been erased like a blackboard rebuilt and erased again, but baseball has marked the time. This field, this game is a part of our past, Ray. It reminds us all that what was once good are all it reminds us of all that was once good and it could be again and i think that that final sentence is what speaks to the idea of erasing that regret because it reminds us that even if we we have a regret if something that didn't go the way that it went we wanted it to go if we didn't tell our dad what we wanted to tell him before he died it can be good again right and that's what baseball reminds us of and therefore helps us heal through that process. I think a piece of that comes from the design of the game itself. I think baseball of the four major sports, I think baseball of the four major sports is the most communal game in terms of experience because it's, it's casual. It's outside. It's summertime. And at the same time, the action of the game, the way you said it, Patrick, it has that anticipation and, and that single focused point where it's pitcher and batter. And that's what you're watching the whole time to see where, where what can happen in the anticipation of it. Whereas when you're watching basketball or football or hockey, there's so many moving parts that there's not a point of focus where all attention is bared onto it. And I think the style of the game being that, um, you know, I, I, I said communal, but at the same time, single focused, I think helps because and the longevity of sport helps because I, I Anyone at, at, before football became popular and before hockey and basketball came around, anybody could play baseball. You didn't have to be a super athlete. You didn't have to be a bodybuilder. You didn't have to be huge. 
anybody could have a role on a baseball field. So I think the accessibility of the game, um, at least in its infancy and in its younger eight years, um, has made it something that you can pick up and play with um, at any time. Now, I think today it, the baseball has gotten away from it because I think baseball has become almost an elitist sport. Like you need a $200 bat to play. You need this $150 glove. Like it's become – unlike soccer and basketball where you just roll the ball out and go baseball's not that anymore so that's the stuff i think maybe i don't know if that's as much as in the 80s to where james earl jones's character was going but i think the communal aspect of the game how it's all shared in that kind of way not just as an audience but even on the field itself makes it something where like you said regret and unfulfilled dreams can come out because it's such a shared experience and an accessible experience yeah I think that when you have that quote that is just, it, I mean, I think it's, I've seen it on posters and, and all over the place as I, as I was doing research for, uh, for this week's episode, that last line, Aaron, you said it could be again, that sense of hope that comes with, uh, with what, what the game represents. Um, let's, you know, take a, take a, a page from reality. We talk about the, uh, the the player strike that happened in the, I guess it was the mid nineties was it do you remember what it was and they did they shorten the season yeah ninety four uh, ninety two yeah that's right in the nineties <laughs> so but um, there was this I remember reading about how there's this cycle that happens uh, has happened with baseball so when the Black Sox scandal happened it was Babe Ruth who and his just demeanor and his fame and just his um, popularity that brought people back out to the stadiums to see this guy just mash a home run. And then I can't remember if there was something that happened in the 40s and 50s maybe, but the home run race of 61 did that. And then um, what I remember, what I grew up remembering was the strike and the Sammy Sosa-Mark McGuire home run race back in, in 98 that – that brought people back to the stadiums, that brought people back to the game. I think that is what we're talking about, not just about making baseball popular again or even accessible, but baseball, at least in those contexts, represents a sense of, of hope that people say, you know what, this could be good again, therefore we could be good again, therefore there's a lot of stuff that can be resolved, this resolution. And I think that the opposite of that is regret and the the steps that each individual person in this film take, particularly those four, Joe, Ray, Terrence, and Moonlight, baseball helps to center them. Their love for the game helps to bring them to a place where they recognize regrets, they analyze them. Particularly, I love Moonlight's story, how he didn't regret becoming a doctor, but the look on his face as a young kid and then him looking back after he you know, goes back to being old and being a doctor and his smile. I mean, you know that he just, I think he got like the best of both worlds at that point. And so he doesn't have, I don't think he would have had regret either way, but I think that lack of baseball experience, getting that fulfilled him even more. Um, and that's kind of what got me thinking about this, this idea of the theme of regret and, and how it's, um, how it's thought of. There's a there's another theme um, that that runs and it's pretty pretty heavy. It's the uh, the theme of a father <laughs> and his child. And I, I use that that phrase intentionally because it's interesting. We don't see Ray have a son. He has a daughter, and yet 
I felt a deep connection between him and her, particularly when he was plowing through his corn and making this baseball field, how excited he sounded in his voice of telling her these stories of Shoeless Joe and how he got his name and almost as if his dad was telling him these same stories, he's repeating them to his daughter. Did you guys think that was a good choice from a storytelling standpoint to not have a father-son relationship between him and his offspring? Or did you think it was old or what? I loved it. I thought it was, um, I don't, I, I don't, like I said, I don't know how intentional it was, but I loved it because then it's not overdoing it and overlayering it. And I think it, even from a cinematic standpoint, it makes it more accessible that girls can have fun in this sport too. And this, you know, obviously this film predates a league of their own by, uh, three years. So, I mean, you, that girls empowerment story of baseball hadn't come around yet. And even just having a daughter, the fact that stories and fatherhood can be channeled to either place i i, I loved it I, lo- I like the fact that it's a daughter i'm biased because my oldest is a daughter and that's the person i talk to all day long and it's amazing so <laughs> what about you aaron yeah i i like the choice as well i think that if it had been him with a son that it would have been overkill in a lot of ways and i think that we would have gravitated toward focusing on Ray's relationship with his son and trying to constantly compare it to his regrets about his own relationship with his dad and really creating this baseball field in the middle of, you know, his corn in Iowa is his son in so many ways. And so I think that you you don't want to give him a, a boy. And I, and I also think because I really enjoy the character of his wife, that it's a neat, a neat way for us to see how the daughter reacts. Um, this is something I pulled out of the film that I don't know if anybody else does or if it's something that they even intentionally wanted me to, but my goodness, his wife is so completely supportive of him. Um, she is just constant. I mean, to the point where I almost laughed a couple times once where um, they see somebody, out there in the fields, there's like this dark figure outside their house and they're in the middle of the, you know, nowhere. And she just says, I'll put on some coffee. You just go outside. And I'm like, dude, <laughs> there is a strangely dressed ghost outside. Mm-hmm. And you're like, hello, just, just go, you know, like, like, what is she doing? Um, but there's, there's so many times where she just is always so supportive, whether it's, she makes funny jokes, you know, what if the voice calls when you're gone, take a message. Um, he has this great. She, comic. She's on, she's on the she's list so, of coolest movie wives ever. I'm not, I'm, yeah, yeah. Amy, Amy Madigan's awesome. Yeah, exactly. And I and I just I really enjoy the way that she is supportive of him, and I think that it it carries over into the way that we see his daughter be supportive of him. Right, right. his daughter defends the field against um his brother in law, and she's like, no, they're there, and she's she's very like upfront about it, you know. So like, I'm here to watch the game. Like she doesn't, she doesn't, you know, make any bones about it. So I love that as a whole, the fact that he has a daughter ties into this idea of a complete family. And a, mm-hmm. I mean, it's not just one wholesome man or one wholesome relationship is a complete wholesome family. Right. Before we leave this father and child theme, I, I got to ask a sidebar question. Cause I wonder if it informs where you each come from, in terms of approaching this movie, what and I, I if it's if it's too personal, just say so. Um, 
what are each of your relationships like with your own fathers? Well, I'll tell you, my, uh, my relationship with my dad is pretty close. We, um, you know, my faith has helped shape a lot of my worldview and that comes from my relationship with him. I grew up, uh, in church and he was, um, heavily involved in the uh, student ministry doing music. So, uh, he was a, he was a presence in my life beyond just being a parent. And in college, our relationship took a, took another step forward where, where my adulthood, uh, I became to be, I don't want to say as equal, but we came, we became friends. We became more having conversations that were equalized. It wasn't just a father talking to a son or a son talking to his father. As I, as I left college, um, that relationship has, has grown. And I think that my relationship with him definitely influences my emotional connection with this film combined with my relationship with my son. I mean, I can, I think we can all agree that, um, having children obviously enhances your, your vantage point of watching this film. But even before that, I think sitting down and enjoying this film with him, uh, I've mentioned on the show several times, there are movies that we have covered and movies that we will, uh, cover in the future that I enjoy with my dad specifically more than anything because he enjoys them. And so when he enjoys those and I can enjoy that with him, that enhances our relationship because I can, I can participate in that experience with him. And as a result, I both enjoy the film for my, for its own merits, but I enjoy it because of my connection with him. So it's a very solid relationship. It's had such an interesting ebb and flow of growth because of my, uh, my arrogance in my, in my twenties and my, you know, ever maturing, hopefully maturing (laughs) nature in my thirties. And as I've grown to have a son, I think that helps inform our relationship with him as well. Aaron, what about yourself? Um, I have a very good relationship with my dad. Uh, we, it's not, it's, it's like a lot of men's relationships with their dads. We don't talk all the time. Um, we don't say a lot necessarily, but my dad has always been there for me, um, through thick or thin when he didn't know how to react, didn't really matter. Um, I think back to, you know, I can tell many stories. I guess we could all tell stories. There's no reason to jump into a whole bunch of stories, but um, much like Patrick's dad, my relationship with my dad kind of extended beyond just within the closed doors of our family because my dad was very outgoing. Both of our fathers were like this and they were very welcoming. So, you know, Patrick spent a lot of time at my house and my dad was an entertainer, um, would always want to, to, to make, <laughs> make a fun time for, for friends that would come over just as his dad would. Um, for me, I mean, I still, I still talk to his dad all the time on Facebook, you know, and, uh, when I visit Patrick, um, comes down and, and hangs out with us. So yeah, we've, we both, I think had very, very good relationships with our fathers. And I definitely think that I see this film through that lens. I wonder honestly what it would be like to watch it through the eyes of someone like Ray who could resonate with the idea of having those regrets because it's not really a healing story for me. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm watching someone else go through that process, but it doesn't have that effect on me personally. Right. Um, What about, did you have a good relationship with your father, Don? No, that's the thing. Um, that's why this film can be a, you know, a divergent and a healer for me. Um, my father was, um, a drunk still kind of is. And, um, 
and yeah, he was not, he was ne- he was the father who was not around to play catch and not around to ever come to sports and not around to support me in school or my career and things like that. And uh, my parents ended up divorcing uh, when I graduated high school and they probably should have divorced, you know, 10 years before that. But they did the whole stay together to get the smart kid through school to go to college because I was the one kid who was going to go somewhere. And um, so for me, I don't have a good relationship with my father, but I but I saw everyone else have an awesome relationship with their dad. And I'm like, gosh, I had either kind of that childhood and then teenage kind of jealousy that you know I, I i missed that which made me in my youth gravitate more to my coaches at school in terms of just a father figure substitute so to watch kevin costner's what and what what all of my ugly experiences with my father has taught me and and I, let me finish the arc of it all we're we're good now we're very good now in terms of it took me kind of because I was a prick in my 20s like every other kid in their 20s. And, um, but once I grew up and got a job and, and, and established myself and, and matured, um, he and I have kind of become better about talking to each other. And now that he's become a grandfather, he gets a kick out of me watching – he gets a kick out of watching me be a dad. Um, and it tickles him to death to watch me be a dad. And I could tell it – because I can read people enough as a, as a school teacher where – I can tell the look on my father's face that it's a massive regret that he wasn't better with me to the point where he could enjoy things the way I'm already enjoying things with my children. And he doesn't know a thing about what I do with this movie stuff at all. He, he knows very little. He knows I was on the radio in Chicago one time uh, back in January. And um, But other than that, he uh, – so for me to watch a film like Field of Dreams, it, it is a healing thing because I wanted that. I wanted that game of catch so bad with my dad for years. So to get to see somebody else have it and be fulfilled by it and to even externally be be thankful and happy for that healing happening in the film was okay for me. And I and that's become a nice rewatch for me ever since in that the moral of my, my arc with this of saying this is for every bad example that my father was, some it's that whole classic thing of sometimes the best example of, to do it right is is a bad example of what not to do. So – I'm not a hardcore drinker. Will never will be. You know, um, I won't do. <laughs> I consciously won't do things that my father does to my children, and I move heaven and earth to be there for my kids because I don't want to be that dad. So I know I'm jumping the gun in terms of the notes here, but that whole turn into the father thing—that's the part that resonates for me huge, and why that game of catch and every little piece along the way destroys me and destroys me in such a good happy tears kind of way it's it's nice but um i admit it comes from jealousy towards i wish i had that dad mm. and that's a that's a solid quote you know you 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 hinted at it it's racing i'm scared to death of turning into my father i never forgave him for getting old um maybe this is because i had a good relationship with my dad but i never quite understood that fully mm-hmm. um you know, how do you yeah. not forgive somebody for getting forget for getting old? What do you guys glean from that? Um, for me, especially because I, I, it's hard for me to remember the good version of my dad, the one that was the laughing, giggling, good guy. Like it's it fits and spurts for me. So once I got old enough to understand why he had the troubles he has and can and the demons he still carries, even though we're even though we are much better now. Um, but in, until I've figured out what made him tick i never understood it and i was i was yeah i was ray i never i was it was just a complete a-hole to my father 
because he was a complete a-hole to me, whether he meant to be or not. And so, yeah, all those layers and fears really ping. Mm-hmm. And um, you're right. And it, yeah, it's it's been it's been a challenge to kind of find that middle ground and whether or not that works or not. Yeah, for sure. Aaron, do you have any thoughts on that? No, I'm, I I'm, I appreciate Don you sharing with us honestly because I, this is a different perspective for me. Yeah. Um, you know, because mm-hmm. I can me only too. I can literally only watch it as a story. I can't relate, and you know, for me, it's similar to uh, many romantic stories. You know, having been twice divorced and being a very much a feeler and emotional kind of guy when it comes to love in my life and the way that my relationships have have gone. Um, those are the kind of stories where I really relate to, and I can, I can take every quote and I can break it down a million different ways about how I feel. Um, but I couldn't with that one. In fact, my dad is literally spontaneous to a fault. Like everything he does is spontaneous. He's the exact opposite of many of these things that Ray is Mm -hmm. describing. So, so I do appreciate your, your being able to, to bring that to the table because, um, it, it makes me respect the story even more because it, yeah. it moves me it moves me mm-hmm. now um yeah without having that connection but realizing and knowing that others go through this um it's even mm-hmm. more powerful yeah i that, like when i know we get to connecting point that scared to death i'm turning my father thing i've had since my 20s like don't don't be mm-hmm. that guy don't don't wow. ever turn into him and and being a dad now it, it has turned the corner and Love of a good woman helps, you know, um, you know, successful, different career helps, you know, uh, getting away from home and not living where I, you know, not living in the home where all that unfun stuff was the guy who got out of a small town, you know, like all those little steps in my life help. But at the same time, I love that film for me has always been a place for to find touchstones, even if they're touchstones you didn't have in your life. But when I can absorb, um, a great, a great image or a great story or a good touchstone in terms of something like that. It, it, it only behooves me more to seek those in my own life, you know, not just, mm-hmm. not just let them be a fantasy, go act them out, go find that for yourself. And that's been a great motivating thing for me. And yeah, it's, it's, it doesn't make this movie any less successful and, and impactful than if I did have a great dad. So that's the fun part about it that you can get both. Yeah. And the rewatchability increases as a result of that. So I wanted to lead into our, our, our next uh, I guess, topic by quoting from the late, great Roger Ebert. This is from his review of Field of Dreams. And he's quoted as saying, the movie sensibly never tries to make the slightest explanation for the strange events that happened after the diamond is constructed. Don, you joked earlier in saying this is sort of yeah. a ghost story weird. And it is. There, there's, oh, some, yeah. there's some real truth to the fact that if you strip this down, it's about a guy hearing voices and doing insane things that he never tries to explain away, or he, even if he tries to explain, he can't. And so mm-hmm. there's this idea of faith, reason versus revelation, karma, to, all yeah, of it, yeah, all those types of things. Um, I love that while he's on this journey, his own journey, he has a community of people that join in with him. And you guys said earlier about Annie. Annie is such a solid supporter of what, of what he does, but even she kind of almost breaks to a point. Like she's, she's about ready to, to, to literally, you know, sell the farm. And, but there's a moment right before he decides to build the, uh, build the field. And she said, 
just so plainly, I also feel if you really feel you should do this, you should do it. And I, I, I think if she hadn't said that, I don't know that we would have gotten the film that we did. Because I can tell you, and I've mentioned this before, having someone support you in your insanity and your dreams and the things that may seem kind of bizarre in some ways, seem far-fetched, seem risky, having someone alongside you, I think there's, a, there's an incredible amount of fuel emotionally sure. that, that comes from that. And I think that's why this movie isn't just about Ray's journey. It's about his relationship with his family, about their relationship with him how they all support each other. And I think what it does is it brings to light the value of his family to himself. I think he comes to that revelation. Maybe he, I mean, maybe he already had it. Maybe we're just being informed by that, but I I love the fact that the movie isn't, I think one of the critics criticisms of it is that it's slow. It's definitely a slow movie. It's not fast paced, but Kevin Costner is the guy you want to be in this. I mean, he is a slow talking actor, maybe not in things like Waterworld, but he, when I, when I think of, you know, cornfield, Iowa, just, you know, homegrown. Kevin Costner's the one I come with. So did you guys, did that work for you? The supernatural aspect of it or the slow pace? Did that, did that work? Did it, did it hinder the experience for you? Uh, no, for me, because um, I think they really packaged it well. Um, and I'll point to a, um, an artistic choice in the film and that's James Horner's score. Um, because he, you know, he also, as an as an artist and as a score writer, um, can do very nice, quaint, plain, you know, piano and 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 midwestern country kind of motif the way he does in some of those more plain scenes. But when things get spooky, his little Japanese wood flute comes out, and the little stingers and hits come, and they even though they are tonally different than where the nice plain music is, um, it's just enough to kind of get you going a little bit and let you know that it's spookier or at least you know kind of out there without being way over the top fantastical like i think if mm-hmm. this film was made today i don't think it would be this quaint i think it would oversell and over push the fantasy i think you'd even over push the family stuff like i think you'd see a, a schism between the husband and the wife because how many other films have we seen where husband does his own crazy thing and the wife hates him for it so mm-hmm. um i like i i think I don't know. There's a wholesome value here that I don't think we would see today. And and if that makes the, this film dated, so be it. I think it's awesome. Good stuff. How about you, Aaron? Well, I think it mostly works. Um, I think the movie is emotionally connecting enough that it overshadows that goofiness that I mentioned earlier. I mean, I'm going to be real. I it, it, it It's noticeable. Like, it is... Oh yeah, absolutely noticeable on on a shtick kind of a, a manner. Like it's kind of goofy, and um, I think I think the film committing to it is what's important. Uh, it never it doesn't kind of give you these these silliness silly ideas and then try to explain them but not fully explain them. That's where movies go wrong, is when they kind of try to straddle too much instead of just like that's what I like about movies like um, a ghost story and. Sometimes Terrence Malick stuff, but just when you go full bore and, and Don, Don's freaking out over there, but when you go full on like existential crazy, at least go full, right? Go, go a hundred percent if you're going to go. That's um, true. That's true. I, I'll grant I, whether that. you like it or not, it's fine. Um, I know, I know. But yeah, for this one, I like that it kind of, it kind of did that in a way 
it never it never tried to address it. I think had it tried to address that um, that issue that that uh, Ebert brings up, the strange events, and and try to give you an explanation, it would have been a problem. I really love that it, it kind of felt at the beginning like a horror movie, and I did not remember that. But when he is initially hmm. walking through the corn and he's hearing this voice. And it's saying, you know, whispering, if you build it, you will come. And that, that, that score is, is in the background. It is eerie, man. It is eerie. It feels like a ghost story at that point. Like you said, it is, it is like a horror movie. I'm, I'm waiting for something creepy and scary to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really liked it. I think that the way in which the reveals are done for each of the various uh, side characters, whether it's Moonlight um, or, Terrence man um, just the way that they are introduced and the, the kind of fantastical elements uh, one of my favorite parts is when Terrence is just the the, the screen or the the camera sh- pops forward and there's Terrence like standing silhouetted in front of the van like talking yeah. in his deep James Earl Jones voice and I like I about jumped out of my chair man I was like what what is going on is he gonna murder him <laughs> um I don't remember him murdering Kevin Costner in this movie but like yeah it's uh it works for me Worse for me in a yeah. big way. I agree. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to, I'm just going to echo what you said earlier, Don. James Horner is a favorite composer of mine. And this is a film that, that did it for me. His ability yeah. to be both laid back and creepy. I mean, he, he sells the moments and mm-hmm. there are, this film feels well thought out. It feels purposeful. It feels intentional. It doesn't feel like we're trying to get from one story beat to the next. There were, um, I, this just the these little things that set up the the story like the opening monologue. I love that Ray says, "My father was a Yankees fan, so of course I rooted for Brooklyn." So that tells you so much, because um, he then says, "But in '58, the Dodgers moved away, so I had to find other things. We had to find other things to fight about." So in those two sentences, we already get some schism between Ray and his dad, which is going to be a huge deal throughout the film, um, and then. You know, we have later on these little moments that lead to other ones. Like, for example, Ray reads that Terrence is missing in the newspaper after they've gone looking for for Moonlight Graham. So Terrence get you know Terrence needs some privacy. So Ray goes walking around and he ends up leaving and he finds Doc Graham. He goes into the past, you know, which is mm-hmm. completely subtle. But I don't question that at the point in this at the film in the film because I'm more concerned about them finding Moonlight Graham because I want him to go the distance and ease his pain, you know, all this stuff I'm already in. Um, and I love that they don't try to explain who the voice is. In fact, to this day, as much as I've read, we don't know who played the voice and I love it. I love that in the credits, it's just the voice. I mean, some have said it's cool. And to me, you mentioned it, uh, this idea of if you're going to do it, do it all the way, sell it completely. Because what that does for an audience is it tells us that, that we can trust you. You know, you're not going to show us one thing and then tell us something else. You're, you're going to fully commit to this thing. And by trusting, by letting us trust you, we enjoy the film a lot more. And I think that's echoed in the relationships with these guys in the film. Um, you know, Ray puts himself out there to potentially kidnap Terrence, you know, with his finger and, and then we get that moment that you mentioned, Aaron, where he's turning around and he, he says, uh, he says, Moonlight Graham. He goes, you saw it. You know, there's this, there's this sense of, I trust you, you trust me. 
and let's go on this journey together. And I think that sense of trust exists throughout the film. His relationship with Annie, uh, his daughter's relationship with him, his relationship with you know Shoeless Joe to an extent. It's just, I love that the film as a whole echoes the what I would consider the passion or the love from the creators. So uh, just really, really cool stuff. Um, specifically, uh, James Horner, just speaking to the music real quick, there's this four-note piano tune when something, quote, magical happens. Very intentional. I think that's great. Um, Bill Conti does that in the original Rocky. I remember remembering that, and I was like, dude, James Horner's doing that same thing here. So just so much fun. Uh, yeah, I think this is an underappreciated uh, piece, or I, I should say an underappreciated film in Horner's kind of you know resume. I think everyone goes straight to titanic all the time and i'm like you're you're missing the good little work he does in films like this or um i his number one for me is legends of the fall i love that score he does and that where you go from that fiddle to the to the more darker stuff and then the themes there where the guy's a master and he and he like you said i love the way he can balance he can balance the wholesome with the creepy and it, and it works Absolutely. Well, before we get into our connecting point, were there things that uh, you guys wanted to mention that we didn't cover? Just some highlights or anything? Um, I, I think um, I loved I, I, trying to do more research into this. What, what impact this was in 1989 when it came out, and uh, I don't. I mean, I probably saw it on VHS years later and things like that. But like this, it was neat to see Kevin Costner. Or at least read about how this was him on the you know star on the rise you know like he you know Boulder was already in the in the in the can a little or, or already finished and then the Untouchables kind of put him on the map a little bit in 1987 but then this was the one that I don't know it seemed like because it's before he did Dancing with Wolves where I feel like this was his you know Americana statement film of I don't know the everyman guy you know and I know Tom Hanks has kind of won that award as America's every man, you know, since and, and, and rested that trophy away with ease. But, um, for a while here, Kevin Costner was, you know, was the best thing since sliced bread. And he was on a streak, man, where everything he touched was, was pretty darn good. And it's, it, I like, I'm a Costner Mark. So I, I just admire his, uh, you know, his, his frazzled yet, you know, grounded performance here that I, I, every time I watch the film, I, I always notice something new from Costner, some, some tick, some things, some switch, some, I don't know, different inflection he'll do in different parts. And I, I just really appreciate how he, you know, he had it. It was more than just the look and more than just the, the sex appeal that was Kevin Costner. The guy could act. And I always noticed that. And I wish more people would appreciate that out of the guy. Cause I think he's kind of always maybe been the same versions of the same character since as the, you know, the, the easygoing Midwestern guy, but man, he's good. I especially liked him in for love of the game. I, I think that's uh, one of Sam Raimi's, you know, one of my favorite Sam, I won't say it's his best cause that gets really objective, but it's one of my favorite Sam Raimi films and it's, it's Kevin Costner playing baseball, you know, which is a, you know, a throwback to this film. And I thought, just like you mentioned, I think he he owns that role. I feel like he loves the game of baseball. Well, he's and I think it's been in like five baseball movies. So that's what I'm saying. Oh, yeah. I'm saying I'm saying that he's if you yeah obviously I wouldn't expect him to be in any other sports movie except baseball because of the fact that he's been in these. But I feel like draft day. Oh no! No, he wasn't a football player. He was a I, manager. So I know, you know. close enough. <laughs> My favorite Kevin Costner performance is. Not one you're gonna agree with, but it's Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. You like them in that? Ooh, okay. I, I absolutely love that movie. I, like I can't it. help it. Yeah. Um, 
you know, I, I don't have anything really deep to say. I just the one of the the really neat moments in this movie that I kind of latched onto when I saw it, and I was like, man, that's a that's a great touch. Is when they're playing baseball, and Shoeless calls Moonlight Graham over to give him advice about what the next pitch is going to be, and I I absolutely loved it because I felt like. So for the baseball team, this is all about closure, right? They're getting closure from this. And in a way, you know, Moonlight Graham is too, because he never got his shot. He never got to do these things. And so he's being accepted into this group. Um, they're, they're fully embracing him. And for that to happen, it was almost like, obviously the narrative doesn't take it further, but it's almost like the passing of a torch. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's like this, it's just a really, it was just a really neat moment one that you would normally, you know, consider to be something that like a father and a son type relationship that coach and manager. And that's, that's how I felt about it when he called him over and then he gives him a little, you know, playful, playful joke there at the end of it as well. So I just thought that that was a cool touch. Yeah. Props to Frank Wiley. Good acting, good little acting performance in a small little part that had to sell the, you know, the, the, the bright eyed kid part and, yeah, the guy was good. I know he's been in a zillion things since, but uh, that's a nice part for him. Uh, props to you know Burt Lancaster as well. I mean, I think was this did this end up being his farewell performance before he passed? Um, yeah, if yeah. it wasn't, it was his last easy benchmark film, and he's just perfect. You know, just that that wink, yeah, you know, that wink and smile he puts into that older Moonlight Graham role is really good. Mm-hmm. I got one more topic I wanted to ask because okay. Aaron White is on this show, and Aaron White is this mean provoking guy that makes people rank and put crap in lists so (laughs) on the spot where is field of dreams on your list of best baseball films go ahead aaron don't look at letterbox don't Uh, look at letterbox i don't have the ability to think about it um (laughs) you don't have a brain what no i'm saying no i'm saying i'm saying if i don't have the ability to think about it for very long i would have to say that based on what I can recall of the other baseball movies I've seen in the past, and it's been a while for most of them, that it's probably number one because of its emotional, um, the emotional response that it evokes from me. So I think mm-hmm. I think it's it's probably my number one um, story that has to do with baseball. I, I can't I can't think of another one that is as good for me. So yeah, number one. Depend, depending on the time of year or what kind of emotional state I'm in, it flips between one and two. <laughs> What's your number two? <laughs> My number two is Eight Men Out, the story of the oh, 19, all right. the 1919 uh, White Sox. Uh, the, the cast in it is phenomenal. But I will say this. Ray Liotta is always going to be my shoeless Joe. Um, there you go. D.B. Sweeney, Sweeney. Yeah, Sweeney plays, plays Joe, and he may be playing it more accurately, uh, even down to the fact that Ray Liotta is the he, I think he bats right instead of left, and but yeah, he's always going to be my my Joe Jackson. So mm-hmm. I, more often than not, Field of Dreams takes the number one spot, but occasionally Eight Men Out will will slip in there okay. and be like, "Hey, I'm here for a little bit." What about well, you? For, well, for me, um, I think the sport of baseball, and it's I I like I like the I don't think it's a coin toss. I'm going to just say it. I I think baseball has made the best sports movies of any sport on film followed closely in second by boxing um, because the, the boxing movies that are out there are extraordinary. But baseball to me, there's not a football movie 
period that can come close to some of these top three films that most people put on the list for baseball. Um, same thing for, and there's, and I'll, I'll even go down the list and say, there's not one good basketball movie period, you know, um, not on a, you know, quintessential classic, the way we're putting some of these films on. So my list, and I made a list a couple years ago, about five years ago. Um, I kind of did a top 10 list of, um, the best baseball films. And then, then I, I put kind of their best lesson because you know, I me, mean, every movie has a lesson. So, um, uh, for me, it's a splitting hair situation of top four. Number four for me is The Sandlot. Number three for me is The Natural because I love the mythology and legend that goes on there. Number two is Bull Dorm because it's just so damn cool. And But Field of Dreams is my number one. And it, it, it runs away and hides a little bit, even though I say splitting hairs. But uh, it just, yeah, all the, um, all the feels, all the different emotions, and its own little slice of mythology where I can't put it any lower than that. It's it's pretty, it's something. I demand a letterbox list by the end of the week, Mr. White. Wait, I'm going on vacation. <laughs> Hold on Too now. Bad. Homework assignment. Um, I, I'll see what I can <laughs> do. Mr. I'm going to keep looking at Facebook while I'm on vacation. You know. I'll see what I can do. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe in uh, in concert with this um, this episode, that can be our poll for the go. weekly Wednesday. We can we can ask our our listeners and our amazing Facebook group what they think uh, the the best baseball movie ever is. Well, if it looks like your list of bio biographies, is there an Aaron Sorkin baseball film we haven't found yet? Is, is no, we found it. Isn't it Moneyball? Oh gosh, that's that actually my such... number one. By the way, if I if I was if baseball I was taking the emotional, oh. it's about baseball, but there's not actually like, like I'm separating it because of <laughs> the fact that it's not like got the game really being played that much. But sure. Moneyball for me about baseball. It's not. I, I have to separate it because it's more about stats and sure and other stuff, but um. But yeah, it's it's awesome. <laughs> yeah, then you I should just, have include. No, it mentions the word baseball, so it's a baseball movie, <laughs> right? <laughs> Knowing all your little, tea, you know, Kool Aid drinking minions on your site, you know that I'm not one of. Um, yeah, you're right. Moneyball is going to win that darn poll, St- man. I don't know. Based you're on right. based on the most There's recent poll of, of I was going to say most of, based on the most recent poll about biopics, um, we might actually have uh, a football movie win the best baseball poll because some people don't know what a biopic is <laughs> that's true that's true we have some good poll trollers on on the team here yep absolutely i used to always call it biopics <laughs> i did too. i know the pronunciation uh, you know i know this is a terrible sidebar but i i was laughing my butt off at that comment like biopics what it sounds like a brand of contacts you know <laughs> Well, let's begin to wrap things up by looking at our connecting points. Uh, this film also obviously had a lot of emotional connectivity, but I'm sure there was at least one moment, scene, line, whatever, that we can all pick out that uh, that spoke closely to our hearts. So, Dom, we'll, uh, we'll lead with you since you're the guest. Why don't you go ahead and get it Well, going. I mean – I think everyone points to the same one, so I'll go elsewhere for the second one. Um, for me, it's it's the I'm scared to death, I'm turning into my father diatribe, you know, and um, and the idea that I never did really watch my – and I think the extension of that was like my father never doing a spontaneous thing in his life kind of thing because, you know, the father I remember is the – you know, the guy drunk on the couch. So they wouldn't, who wouldn't do anything, wouldn't, wouldn't find any, anything engaging or exciting with his kids. So, um, yeah, that's the connecting point for me because – I had that fear for real. And then at the same time, um, like I said before, sometimes the best example is a bad example where I make sure to be, even though my wife kills me for it, to be the spontaneous one. Like, yeah, let's just go. Come on, let's do it. Send them out at the mall. No problem. You know, so um, I take it upon myself to be 
the opposite. So, yeah, it's the scared to death I'm turning to my father is my anchor point other than the obvious one that I hope other people bring up. Well, I will go ahead and uh, give that to Aaron. I think, uh, what was, what was your pick? Well, as I've resonated on this film and thought about it in the days since watching it, it's actually changed. Okay. The moment that Don is referring to, and that I know we're going to talk about here in a second, Patrick, um, (laughs) this is, this is like so much foreshadowing, but you listeners, you've all seen this movie. So you know what we're saying? Um, that one is the, the moment in the film where I lose it and I cry. And I, I have unmistakable control. I just don't have any control at all of, of my faculties. I just lose it and I, and tears come out of my face. Um, so it is powerful in that way. But the one that I've kept thinking about since seeing the movie is actually a quote that's spoken by Moonlight Graham. Um, and he tells Ray, he says, we just don't recognize the most significant moments of our lives while they're happening. Back then, I thought, there will be other days. I didn't realize that that was the only day. And in light of the conversation we had most recently on our, our last episode about the social network, about being present, about putting down the phone, about living in the moment, I really have connected with this idea that so much of our lives are spent thinking about what's going to happen next that we don't often just enjoy what we're doing right now, whether it's, I mean, it could be anything, you know, whether it's recording one podcast and, and our mind is worrying about how we're going to get the next one recorded instead of focusing on what we're doing in that moment and really enjoying it and and having the best experience you can have now. And that leads to not having regrets right? Because you know that you gave every moment your all. You know that you made every choice to the best of your ability at that time. And I think that the film does a great job of, of backing this statement up when the ball player, players see the field for the first time, because it feels to me like they realize they're home. I, I love that moment when they walk out and they are just so happy they get run out there. It's like they get to do this thing again. They get to embrace their passion again that they didn't fully do when they were in there in the moment, right? And so I really love this quote, and I think that it has such great meaning to our everyday lives and application that it's the one that I've stuck with, man. Very cool. Well, I, yeah, well said, man. Well said. I'm glad you brought that quote up. I'd actually – I didn't remember that one. And I'll make sure to rem- to look for it, listen for it the next time I watch this film or I want a big cry because I don't know if I'm going to watch that anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> so not that we've spoiled this enough, but I'll go ahead and, you know, play the play the ace of spades here. But I want to I want to preface it by uh, pointing to another scene that happens probably about 10 minutes earlier. And it's the. It's the ride back from Minnesota to Iowa when young moonlight's in the car and it's nighttime. And um, Terrence asks what the awful thing that Ray said to his father. And he says, I can never respect a man whose hero was a criminal. And I think Terrence is quoted as saying, well, you can't bring his father. You can't bring your father back. The least you could do was bring back his hero. 
this is really great misdirection. And I think in, in our, what we've been up to, Aaron, you mentioned this idea of twist endings. And if you're watching this for the first time, you're getting this, you, you hear these mysterious voices or this mysterious voice that says, if you build it, he will come go, uh, ease his pain, go the distance. And what we're doing is we're actually trying to connect the dots. Oh, if you build it, he will come. Well, then Shoeless Joe shows up. Um, and then you say, uh, ease his pain. Well, we discover that I guess it's Terrence's pain that you're trying to ease. Go the distance. Oh, okay, we're supposed to go get Moonlight Graham and bring him back to Iowa. But then we actually, you know, on after watching it, we realize that it's not just about that. At the very least, it's not about that at all. It's about Ray and about his dad. And we know that who he builds the field for, we know whose pain he's supposed to ease. We know, and we know what's meant by going the distance. And that leads into this final moment where Joe says all three of those lines. And then we see, uh, you know, from the back, we see, ultimately we find out it's his dad. Uh, he looks back at him and he says, oh my, oh my God, it's, it's my father. And you just see in Costner's face this moment of like, I have a second chance. Uh, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but I have a second chance. Uh, I read some uh, a tidbit about the actor that plays his dad. And apparently, before he flew up to Iowa, he actually lost his father. His father had just passed. I think he'd just come from a funeral. And so the emotional kind of whatever that the 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 weight that he was feeling, the way he portrayed that was coming from this place of, of loss. And so obviously hearing about that and then watching his face just made it more impactful. But then there's that line, that line that gets every dad every time. And he says, dad, in that broken voice of his, do you want to have a catch? Oh my gosh. Tears. I, I think mm -hmm. I remember just saying movie, stop making me cry. Stop right now. And you know it's coming. You know. I've seen this movie a dozen times at least. And every time, it does the exact same thing to me. I, get, I hear Horner's music and accuse me every time. I know. You just you, – yeah. and you want it. I mean, Don, you mentioned it earlier. You want that brokenness. You want yeah. to feel that that sense of redemption, you know, because all these things that he's feeling, you're feeling. And I don't think anything for me could connect me more to Ray – than that moment there because it's not about the catch it's not about having a catch with your dad it's about the meaning behind it because that is the thing that fathers and sons do that that signifies that relationship as fathers and sons whether it's a football or whatever it's a catch it's it's your it's you it's it's this vulnerable this unpretentious activity that is without any kind of baggage two guys throwing a ball back and forth and i was like I'm ready to go pick my son up and say, let's throw the ball around. <laughs> and it's just, it's powerful guys. It's really, really powerful. I really like what you said about the actor who played his father, because um, like that, the, the follow-up line, just the quiver in his voice. Mm. I like that. Yeah. It, that hits me. Like if I already wasn't already, already fully crying, I'm crying even louder because the dad knows it too. <laughs> you know, yeah. like he picks up on, this is my adult son and the one I met, you know, when I, even if he, he you know, cause it sounds like just in the mythology of the movie that all these guys remember their full lives, even though they come on this field and the age at which they played and all that. So yeah, it's, 
it's big for him too and it, it's mm-hmm. just so perfect yeah what a great way to end in the movie me too same thing like i said instant tears um it was one of those moments where i felt it coming i tried to to fight it off kind of like how you knew it was coming and you couldn't and it just it, it started off as the the weird ugly face kind of squinting and then before i knew it i was like literally actually crying and, and i don't remember the last time i've done that at a film you know i've, I've gotten that teary-eyed oh, kind of choked up feeling plenty of times but to, to sure. actually have tears come down my face um and i was like why like this is it's it's over the moment's over like why am i still crying i don't understand but <laughs> oh, it, you know, it's it just has it, that it's special mu- way it's monthly for me monthly for me i find something that just moves me to tears and i love it like the last really like blubberingly bad cry a, ghost a monster story. calls a monster oh, calls got me you and me both oh. you and me both that was i wanted to go before, i wanted to go punch somebody in the face yeah and that, and that one i knew was, was coming yeah absolutely <laughs> and then like and then a, a, a year before that room room destroyed me oh man just yeah so I, monthly i find something that completely shatters me and i love it i i welcome it i really do welcome it it's it's cathartic and it's it's therapeutic all the good ways that it can be so uh, it's i appreciate those chances that do it and i really admire the films that can that can do that for me well listeners if you have any more recommendations for don to make him wreck himself each (laughs) each month go ahead and send them to him don where can people find you to connect and and send you good recommendations to just make you weep well, don't put them on letterbox because like Aaron will tell me I'll never see him and I'll never find him. But no, um, <laughs> take every movie has a lesson and search it. Uh, every movie has a lesson, lesson.com is my site. But if you search that on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Medium, um, Vimeo, uh, there's, there's a layer there for everything with that. So um, that's what I'm up to there. Um, uh, and a new series of things I've been starting uh, other than the work I do with you guys, which is phenomenal and awesome, is um, I've been trying to kind of fire up this YouTube channel of mine that I used to do back in the day that I'm doing again now, this movie classroom where I uh, I kind of do a teacher slant. Uh, I use an uh, I use an iPad and, a, and an interactive whiteboard app to kind of write scribbles and thoughts and things at the same time as my review is reading to you. So it's just a different maybe video audio way of digesting my TLDR reviews. So uh, yeah, that's kind of where you can find me. Um, I look forward to uh, next to my slate in terms of reviews and films is uh, Book of Henry. I still got to get that thing off off the brain and on the plate. So uh, other than that, we'll see how the summer progresses. I don't mean to be the guy that throws the plug in for the summer movie challenge, but please keep an eye on that because one of the men in this trio right here is is a winner and one of them is and two of them are probably losers so uh you know it just it, it could be me yeah maybe i think it could be me we'll see i, I like my well, chances I thought, I thought you were going to introduce me because that's a great segue into uh kind of letting you guys know where you can find me on social media you can find me at shoeless patch s-h-o-e-l-e-s-s-p-a-t-c-h i'm also hanging out at this is patch.com my personal website if uh if you want to find out more about the show or catch past episodes why don't you check out feelandfilm.com you can catch some of Don's writing. He gives us a wonderful weekly column of the things that we've learned in the world of cinema. So please feel free to check out all those past articles as well as uh, every Friday he brings some some new content our way. We're really appreciative of that. Also check out our other show next door, Feeling Film Plus, where we take a look at things like documentaries, anime, video games, whatever's, whatever's uh, striking our passions. Uh, you can find that some past episodes there. We're just getting started and, um, you know, hopefully some more content will be coming your way. But, uh, in the meantime, you know, stick with us here at feeling film. Cause we've always got stuff for you. Aaron, what about you? Well, 
listeners, if you've by chance avoided the bad word of mouth and actually gone to the theater and seen the movie called It Comes at Night, uh, there's something there at Feelin' Film Plus for that, too. Dawn and I actually got together minutes after me walking out of the theater and had like a little therapy session to kind of figure <laughs> out how I was feeling awesome about that movie. It was, it was a great time. It was really neat. This It was like a raw reaction kind of thing. It's something that we may be doing more of over at Feelin' Film Plus, um, Patrick included, because... It, it was it was just a neat experience to to walk out and not be able to have any depth to what I was thinking. And I think it it, it works best on films like that where mm-hmm. they shock you somewhat and you have questions. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah. So that was a good time. So yeah, no, seen no the... one no one's coming out of Cars three going. I need to talk to somebody. You know? <laughs> right, <laughs> right. So if you if you've seen it, comes at night. Check out Feeling Film Plus. Um, it is its own feed. Subscribe to that one as well, and, and you can hear that. You can find me everywhere on social media at Aaron L. Y A A R O N E L W H I T E on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. You can also find me very active in our amazing Facebook group where everybody comes to talk about movies all day long. We would love to have you join that as well, and links to that are in the show notes and the blog post, and also at the bottom of the landing page of the website, feelinfilm.com. Next Excellent, week. Aaron. Next week, next week. Can I say what's next week? Because I'm excited about oh, what's next week. Okay, you can go ahead. Go Don, ahead. sorry. Don, I'm gonna Don mute yourself right now. Oh no! So no, no, next no, week, we have the amazing, amazing, amazing movie coming. We are going to be talking about Pacific Rim. That's right. It is going from a Father's Day baseball <sighs> movie to all about giant robots and don will not be joining us joining us to i will spoil not the fun. be joining you i will not be listening <laughs> the jaegers watch out for the jaegers they're coming after you yeah the, the, the old ladies at the bar is trying to get me drunk with the jaeger come on get out of here so listeners oh. we hope you'll come back next week and hear us oh, uh, enjoy nice. that wonderful wonderful movie <laughs> thank oh, you aaron <laughs> Uh, thank you, Pat. Thank you, Aaron, for having me. Uh, next time, um, look forward to another full episode. These are always fun. It's nice to revisit the classic. Yeah, Don, glad you could uh, you could make it. And uh, we'll talk to you hopefully soon, either here or on the web somewhere, right? <laughs> and in the meantime, as we always say on the show, stay positive. Want to have a catch? 